This morning, I want to talk about our community's vision. I want to talk about what we're all about, why we exist, what are we, why are we doing this? Why are, why are we having these Sunday services in this theater? Uh, our vision for St. Peter's Fireside uh, is to join God in the renewal of all things. And we want to see spiritual, social, and cultural renewal within our city, but through a community gripped and transformed by the gospel. Because we believe Jesus is actually in the business of making all things new. And that through him, we actually get to see glimpses of heaven intersecting with earth. And so we want to find those places. We want to find those moments where we can say, ah, there it is. The kingdom of God is at hand. God's presence seems palpable. This is how things really ought to be. And so for us, this begins with spiritual renewal because I think it is the basis of every other sort of renewal. Because spiritual renewal, it brings about a renewed sense of purpose and vision. The formation of our identities and our purpose through a relationship with God is absolutely crucial to every other thing that we do. And so spiritual renewal, it is the basis of any lasting renewal. But it's precisely this point, this idea of talking about spiritual renewal that some of you might have objections with. You might have some qualms. You know, you look at Vancouver and you say, by and large, I mean, we live in a great city. We do, don't we? I mean, you're all missing the sun right now, which I appreciate, but like, we live in a phenomenal city. Uh, it's one of the best-rated cities in the world, and, and you might look at it and you might say, well, yeah, our city has some issues, right? You know, we got a homelessness problem. Uh, we do have this loneliness and isolation problem in the core. Uh, we have a few corrupt, you know, politicians. Uh, but getting all spiritual, that's not going to fix these problems. But I would say that these problems are spiritual issues. If you think about it, abandonment, oppression and anxiety, greed or corruption, at the core, these are spiritual issues because they deal with who we are and how we see ourselves and how we see our place in the world and how we see God. And while I agreed we do need social and cultural renewal, please hear me say that, my concern and my question is how? How do we become the type of people that bring that sort of change? How do we become the type of people who bring glimpses of heaven intersecting with earth? How do we get spiritually renewed? And if that's the question, then spiritual renewal has to begin with God. So first it means seeing God rightly. But second, it means seeing ourselves rightly in, re in light of who God is and seeing him. And finally, it's seeing that grace is the mode of spiritual renewal. Because when we see God, when we see ourselves, and when we see how grace works between those two things, it creates a massive shift and renewal just starts to happen. So let's look at Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. Uh, it's in your handouts. It'll also be on the screen, but if you have your Bible, that would be handy to have open too. Uh, some quick context and background. We're, we're somewhere in the 8th century BC. Uh, Israel is doing quite well under King Uzziah. Right? He, he, he gets put in power and he immediately brings reform. He starts helping the people follow God again. And with that follows wealth and affluence. And he's, he's one of the few kings that the scriptures pays the compliment of doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Like, this is a, a good king. 
But over time, like a lot of people, the success went to his head. You know, all the power went to his head. And he got puffed up. It led to pride. And the scriptures tell us that this was to his destruction. Because he stopped being faithful to God. And then Israel, they followed suit. The people followed suit. They started trusting in the king's vision rather than God's vision. They started trusting in the materialism or in their status and in their power. They lost sight of their identity and purpose. They forgot who they were supposed to be. They forgot that their, their sole purpose as a nation was to love God and love others, that they would be a beacon of light and love and hope and truth and justice for the world. And they lost sight of this. And I think our city intersects with this ancient city in many ways. In Vancouver, we're predominantly wealthy. We have good causes. You know, we, we care about taking care of the environment. We care about taking care of our neighbors. Yet God, where is God in the picture? God is totally eclipsed by our self-sufficiency. God is eclipsed by the natural beauty of the ocean and the mountains. God is eclipsed by our good deeds. There's just barely any recognition of God in people's day-to-day -day lives in our city. So we can see ourselves a little in this text. And so here we are. King Uzziah has fallen, Israel has failed, and, Uzziah, and Isaiah writes in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, we find ourselves in a time when Israel doesn't have a king. They've lost sight of their identity and their purpose. They've, they're off track with God. They're in this time of mourning. And Isaiah, as a prophet, he would be praying. He would be pleading for God to give him some sense of direction, some sense of help, so that he can help Israel be renewed and reclaim their identity and their purpose. He would be pleading for renewal and restoration. And we're told that God answers Isaiah. He gives him a vision. And in verses 1 through 3, Isaiah describes this vision, and it's spectacular. A mortal king has just died, and Isaiah sees an ever-living king, a high and lifted up, majestic and enthroned king, praised by heavenly beings. Isaiah sees a king so glorious, so splendid, that even the angels had to cover their eyes while they were singing, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Unlike a king whose morality declined over time, God reveals himself to Isaiah as this holy God, this holy king. And he's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew scriptures, when they want to emphasize something, uh, like say they want to say a deep pit, they would say the pit pit. Right? This is their superlative. This is how they do it. So when they say holy, 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 this is the only time three things are said like that. It's to emphasize that God, he is totally transcendent. He is totally other. And yet, even in his otherness, he is completely present and concerned with humanity because his glory fills even the earth. And so during a time when the nation had no king, Isaiah gets a, a glimpse of the true king. He gets to see the king that the nation should turn to, to find direction, to find wholeness, to find renewal. And then this interesting thing happens. In seeing God rightly, Isaiah begins to see himself rightly. He gets what one scholar calls a fresh glimpse of himself. A fresh sense. He sees God, he sees himself, and then he sees his imperfections. He sees his mistakes, and he cries out, Woe is me! You see, spiritual renewal, it begins this way. We see God, but then all of a sudden, 
we see ourselves. And I think at a basic level, we get this. I mean, just looking at all of you, you're good-looking people. Right? Well done. You dressed up. You're looking good today. Uh, but you know from experience, don't you? The moment that a better-looking person walks into the room, you know, suddenly you have this fresh sense of yourself, don't you? You know, the, the scale by which you measured yourself changes. You know, next to Brad Pitt, I suddenly go from, you know, not bad to, eh. You know, but some of you, you stand next to floating head Brad Pitt, and, and you think, I still hold up. You know, and so you see Isaiah's response to God, and you think, well, Isaiah, that's a little much. It's a little overdramatic. I mean, if, if I meet God, he's going to think I'm a pretty decent person. I don't need to be crying out, woe is me. When I was in the fifth grade, I had a friend named Sean Sunberg, great guy. Uh, for a 10-year-old, Sean was just remarkably handsome. I mean, like Greek god material in this 10-year-old boy. And so being his friend, I just assumed I had the same good looks. And during recess, we loved to play wall ball with a tennis ball. How many of you played wall ball? Do you remember wall ball? You know, so we'd throw the ball, it hit the wall, the other person catch it, and you just go back and forth. And one day, as Sean threw the ball and I caught it, he looked at me and he said, Alistair. I said, yes. He said, who do you think you could have as a girlfriend in the fifth grade? So I threw the ball and he caught it and I replied, anyone. And he just started laughing at me, and he, he threw the ball, and I was just so shocked. Like, that was his response, laughter at me. Like, what's wrong with me? Like, my, my psyche is crashing down, and I totally forgot about the ball, and then it smacked me in the head, and Sean's laughing even harder, and I, I come to this brutal realization that I have this misplaced estimation of myself, my poor 10-year-old psyche. Isaiah, he wallballs us back to reality. Let me give you a fresh sense of yourself in light of who God is. You might be a pretty decent person compared to those around you. I'm not going to contest that. Especially when you compare yourself to thieves, you know, corrupt politicians who don't pay for the SkyTrain, um, people who don't recycle. And let's face it, we're all better than people who don't recycle. But if you think you can stand beside God and still be considered a good upright person on your own accomplishments, on your own moral goodness. You have a misplaced estimation of yourself. Not only that, you probably have an incorrect view of God. You think of God, but your perception of him is skewed. It's more like that ruined fresco painting of Jesus that that sweet 80-year-old Italian woman restored. <laughs> but when Isaiah sees God rightly, and in turn sees himself clearly, he says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. To say, woe is me, is actually to declare a curse on yourself. Isaiah is saying, I deserve death. And to say I'm lost, it's actually more rightly put as, I'm undone. Isaiah sees God rightly, and he thinks to himself, I'm done for. I'm done for. And that's not how most of us think we'll end up when we see God, is it? Why is Isaiah done for? I know we don't see it much, but think about the sun. Think about the sun in midday. 
how its splendor, its light, its glory, it hurts your eyes to look straight at the sun. Yet by it, life is sustained on earth. If, we, if the sun were to cease to shine, we would be extinct. Yet if we draw too close to the sun, we would be, we would be burned up in an instant. We actually need to sun, the sun to say exactly where it is. Not too close, not too far. Not too strong, not too hot. You know, just right. If that's true of the sun, what about God? A holy, holy, holy God. Completely good, perfect, true, and loving. Completely just and yet intolerant of evil. The creator of the glory of the sun and all beauty. How much more glorious is he? Pure light, the source of all life, by whom we exist and for whom we're supposed to exist. How could any person draw near to God? No matter how good or holy they may perceive themselves to be, how could they draw near with the slightest imperfection? You see, to draw near to God is to draw near to the sun. It's the same tension. In our fallen state, it's a struggle. Because it, it's by God that we have our life. It, our breath is but borrowed from his mouth. And without him we would die. And yet, in our brokenness, if we draw near to God, we find ourselves like Isaiah crying out, Woe is me. We're done for. Why? Because God's goodness is a radiating power that eradicates darkness. And think about the sin Isaiah confesses to God. He says he's undone because he's a man of unclean lips. This seems a relatively minor offense. I mean, a little gossip, a little, a little slander. But you see, when the, the scales change, when you're compared to a holy, holy, holy God, even our smallest vices, suddenly seen for what they are, appear as a death sentence. Any sin, no matter how major or how minor, is ultimately a front to the very nature of God. And so we die for our sins, not just because God decreed that that should be the judgment for sin, but also because that, his very nature cannot allow sin and darkness to remain in his presence. And I want to pause, and I want to say at this point, for anyone here who thinks they're religious or spiritual, or even if, you, if you're a Christian, like, I don't want you to think you're off the hook. I'm not trying to beat up the non-Christians here. I'm trying to beat us all up. What tool does a prophet use for his work? His lips. Isaiah is saying, even the very instrument I use for God, even the things that I try to do for God, they're still tainted. Even being a prophet, it doesn't earn me any status before God. Even all this work that I do, even if you plan an entire preview service and you do all this crazy work, it means nothing before him. And on top of all of this, Isaiah doesn't just stop with his personal sin. What does he say? I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Essentially, he says, I'm a cog in the wheel of the sinfulness of the world. And I, I think you, I mean, this point's easy, right? Like, we get it. The, we look at the world, it's not as it ought to be. But is it such a wild claim to say that the sin out there actually intersects with your own life? I mean, surely you've been sinned against. You can think of people who've hurt you, who gossiped about you, maybe stole from you. But is it such a wild thing to suggest that maybe you've contributed to the problems in the world as well? 
You buy a pair of shoes. Knowingly or unknowingly, they're made overseas by little children. You buy a cup of coffee, but the beans aren't fair trade. Um, any vegetarians or vegans here? You guys pretty much think like all of us eating meat, like we're perpetually like, committing cruel acts against animals, correct? I would say it is impossible for us, and not that we shouldn't try, not that we shouldn't try, but it's impossible to live such socially conscious lives that our active and passive sins don't harm others. Despite our very best efforts, we remain in the system. And so Isaiah, he recognizes this. He recognizes his individual and personal sin, but then he recognizes this corporate and systematic sin that he's caught up in. And he cries out, woe is me, because he, he can't escape it. And so spiritual renewal, it begins with seeing God rightly. But then we see ourselves rightly. And we see ourselves as broken and in need of, of help. And I get it. Like this point, I know some of you are thinking, this is my issue with Christianity. Like you guys have just way too negative a view of humanity. But we need to be honest. I mean, can we at least be brave enough to admit that you're not perfect? Can, I, can we at least admit we're not perfect? Can we at least admit if there is a God, we're not on level ground with him? Why is it that we resist this? Why do we resist admitting this? I, uh, as my, my parents are here, and as they know, I was hardly a role model as a teenager. Um, before I became a Christian, I, I struggled a lot. I was a confused, confused kid. No sense of identity, no sense of purpose. And when I, had, when I was 18, I had a steady girlfriend. She was, I mean, my wife is amazing, right? And like, like, let me emphasize that. Julia is the best. Uh, this girlfriend, she was okay. She was good. For the time, she was great. And um, one day, she and I got in a big fight over a minor thing. And we're downtown Victoria. And it was about what movie to see. And she wanted to see some movie. I didn't want to. And I got so mad, I stormed off and left her at the movie theater. And uh, I'm not proud of what follows. That night, I went to a party, frustrated, alone. And I ended up meeting another girl. I ended up cheating on my girlfriend. And then I went home, and I'm, I'm sitting in front of my parents' house on the curb, and I couldn't believe I was capable of this. I took myself by surprise. And I was trying to figure out, how do I get out of this? And I was sitting on the curb. This image from Fight Club flashed through my mind. Uh, you know that scene where Edward Norton is in his boss's office, and he just he beats himself up and then blames the boss and gets you know, a lifetime severage package? You know, this scene, it flashes through my mind, and all of a sudden, I'm like, that seems like a good idea. And so I did the only logical thing. I punched myself in the face several times. Uh, not even kidding. I went inside, told my parents I had been mugged. Uh, they took me to the hospital, uh, where I was examined, released, and then I got home, and I got to pretend I was the victim. And the next day, my girlfriend found out what happened and totally forgot about our fight. You know, I, I was in the clear. If I never told her what I had actually done that night, I never told her what I had done, what great measures I had taken to cover it up. I just pretended to be the victim, but it just ate me up inside. That's why I'm confessing it. <laughs> I actually called my mom on Friday to get permission to tell this story because she didn't know the truth. Uh, <laughs> why was I so afraid 
of coming clean. I knew what I had done. I knew what I deserved. I was afraid. I was afraid of admitting that I was a cheater. I was afraid of being dumped. And then it escalated. I was afraid of admitting that I was so dark and broken that I would prefer to pretend to be the victim than to admit to being the perpetrator. We're afraid to come clean and admit that we're undone. Because like Isaiah, we know exactly what we deserve. So we keep our secrets. We put on a mask. We pretend that we really are better than we are. We pretend that inside we don't have dark thoughts. We pretend that our minds, you know, don't hate other people for the smallest of things. We pretend like the actions that we do really have no significant consequences. Because deep down we think, if anyone, if anyone truly saw me, they could never love me. So why would, why? Why would we risk coming clean? Why would we risk coming clean with God? Because I think if we admit it, if we come clean with God, if we admit to our brokenness, it makes what God does next in Isaiah that much more profound. You see, spiritual renewal, it begins with seeing God rightly. It, be, it continues by seeing ourselves rightly. But that would hardly be something we would want to follow, right? If the end was, you're terrible, God's great, that's that, who's in? I mean, who would sign off for that? Who would sign off for that sort of condemnation? Here's what's so pre- profound. Isaiah deserves judgment. He deserves death, but he doesn't vanish in God's presence. He doesn't become dust. He's not killed. And remember, it's not God who declared the death sentence. Isaiah declared his own death sentence. What God does is so surprising. He extends mercy. He extends grace, unmerited pardon. And this is what our, we hope our community is going to be all about. Because the way spiritual renewal works is God's grace. This is what makes our hearts beat faster. Isaiah confesses before God. He says, woe is me. And then one of the seraphim, they go to the altar, which is where sacrifices would take place. And he takes a coal. And then he puts it on Isaiah's lips. And he says, your guilt is taken away. Your sins are atoned for. God says to the unclean, I will clean you up so that you can enter into my presence. I will actually show you just how broken you are, not to make you feel bad about it, but so you can know how profound the grace I'm offering to you is, so you can know I love you even in that place, even in that darkness. And not only that, I will meet you there and help you be renewed and become the person I always saw you to be. So to bring spiritual renewal, our brokenness, our sin, no matter how major or minor, it has to be dealt with which means they have to be explo- exposed before they can be overcome. You know, the, the angel said to Isaiah, your sins are atoned for, which in the Hebrew is actually paid for or ransomed. Someone else paid for Isaiah's sin. Someone else took his place so that renewal was possible. And so naturally, we want to ask, you know, who? Who paid for Isaiah's sin so that he wouldn't be condemned? And as Isaiah continues to write his book, as he continues to get prophecies, God tells him about a suffering servant. And this suffering servant would be innocent and blameless. He would be sinless. He would have no fault, no deceit. He wouldn't harm anyone. He wouldn't sin. And yet, 
he would be condemned. He would, he would die in the place for others. And simply put, it was an exchange. God says, the suffering servant, Isaiah, he's going to die for your sins so you can go free. And you just think, wow. Because <laughs> sin has to be dealt with and he deals with it so you don't have to. But it's not just for Isaiah. The, the suffering servant, the scriptures say in chapter 53 of Isaiah, it was for the many. The suffering servant died, you're telling me, for the sins of King Uzziah? who abandoned God and relied on his own strength. He died for the sins of Israel, who abandoned God, forgot their vocation and calling. He died for the sins of the other nations that never wanted anything to do with him because they thought they were morally good on their own. He, did, he, he died for the corrupt politicians who didn't pay for a SkyTrain ticket. He died for the oppressors who abuse child workers for shoes. He died for the active and passive sins we knowingly and unknowingly commit. He died for this guy who, who deceived and lied and cheated, who made up elaborate stories just to avoid the truth. He died for the sins in the world. This is what you're telling me? This is who the suffering servant is? Who would die for that? Who would die for this lot? Who is the suffering servant? It's Jesus, the Son of God, publicly portrayed as crucified. The New Testament over and over shows us that's precisely what Jesus did on the cross. Not out of obligation, not because he had to, but because he chose to, because he loved the world so much that he would rather pay the cost. And what the cross is, is the ultimate revelation of God's heart. God opens up his heart on the cross and shows us what it costs him to bear the cost of our sin, yet what he's willing to do. On the cross, we see we are far worse than we ever imagined, but far more loved than we could ever dare hope for. And so this brings a massive shift then about our identity, how we see ourselves. This desire that we have to kind of boast of our goodness before God, like no one in this room is ever going to achieve that. That's why Jesus came he didn't come for the righteous or for the people with their lives put together. He says, I came for the sick. I came for the sinners. I came for the needy. So that we could be in a right relationship with God, not based on our goodness or our moral standing, not based on something as fickle as our accomplishments or our status, but based solely on what Jesus has done and the grace he extends to us. It wasn't until I was 22 that this sunk in for me. And I encountered God in this really simple thought. Even if the darkness overcomes you, I'm with you. And since that moment, I've never been the same. I haven't been perfect. God knows that. And life hasn't always gotten easier, but it's changed. And I see that God's grace and his love, it is enough. It's actually what my heart always truly desires. I see that he always carries me through. But to receive that grace, I had to admit that the darkness had overcome me, that I found myself in a situation that I could not fix. I had to recognize my need for it. And when I heard it was available, even in that place, even in my worst, I couldn't help but grasp at it. Have you cried out, woe is me? Have you cried out for mercy before this holy king? 
Because the truth is, God wants to extend mercy. God delights in extending grace. If you turn to faith in Jesus, that's when spiritual renewal starts. God makes you clean so you can enter into his continual presence. Jesus sets you right with God, which means you're no longer separated. You're no longer removed. You're unconditionally loved. You're loved by God. What better identity could there be than that? An unending, eternal love targeted at you. So no matter what will pass or what will come, in Christ, you're loved, you're cared for, you're never alone, you're offered peace, you're redeemed, you're accepted, you're adopted as a child of God, and it just goes on and on. This is a spiritually renewed identity. But then that identity informs our purpose, and we find that we have a renewed purpose as well. In verse 8, Isaiah writes, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. This isn't like some sour-faced obligation. You know, it's not like God's like pressuring Isaiah to go and do, become this prophet. He's just inviting Isaiah to join him in the renewal of all things. And Isaiah, he sees this opportunity, he just says, me, me, like, let me go. And it's joyous. Because when we see God rightly, when we see him as a holy, holy God, when we see ourselves as broken and in desperate need, and when we see the grace that fills the gap between heaven and earth, it fills us and we find our feet moving and propelled towards the direction of Jesus. And then we get to join God in the renewal of all things. And Isaiah, he, he experienced this. He, he got a glimpse of the suffering servant. He encountered grace, but then he also received it. We have a new purpose. When we realize we're God's, that we're loved, that we exist for him and his glory, that's our purpose, to love and to be loved. What does that look like practically? Let me give you a quick sketch. It means we love, but in an incredibly sacrificial way because we see what great extent God went to love us. We forgive others, even if it's deeply costly to us, because we see how much it costs God to forgive us. It looks like radical kindness and mercy because of the mercy shown to us that we could never earn or deserve. It means welcoming our neighbors and even loving our enemies, because when we were enemies, that's when God loved us and welcomed us. It looks like an unreasonable generosity because we recognize everything given to us is just a gift and God gave us everything he had in his son. It ultimately means we become a people of hope because we know one day God will make everything new. He will wipe away every tear. He will wipe away suffering. He will eradicate death. There will only be light. And our song for the eternal ages will be how love defeated everything. And in that, when that becomes the heartbeat of a community, renewal starts to happen. We start seeing relationships changed. We start seeing families changed. We start seeing jobs changed. Those are the places where we say, ah, there it is. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
God's presence seems palpable. We're seeing how things really ought to be. We don't become that by our own efforts alone. The only way we become that is through Jesus. It's through faith in him. Because he works in and through us and teaches us that if we have faith and trust in him, he will be with us and each of us will become a place where heaven intersects with earth. And he will be working in and through us for the renewal of all things. Finally and quickly, what does this look like in Vancouver? It starts right here. It starts with a community like this where we are gripped by the gospel of grace. It means that we rely on grace alone. For our identities, we rely on Christ alone. For our purpose, we rely on his love alone. And as for a church, we realize we don't exist for ourselves. We exist for God and his purposes of renewal, which means we become a community who sees that our purpose is to love our city to life. At our next two preview services, I'll talk about what that looks like practically, what social renewal looks like, what cultural renewal looks like. But for now, like Isaiah, spiritual renewal starts by us praying, by us pleading with God, come and meet us in our city. So let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus, make all things new. So let's pray.